0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. This is Fresh Air. I'm David
1: Bianculli, in for Terry Gross. Comic Roy Wood Jr. is scheduled to appear Saturday in Washington, D.C. as the latest comedian to host the often-controversial White House Correspondents' Dinner. Wood is a correspondent for Comedy Central's The Daily Show and made his debut on that show the same day Trevor Noah took over as host. And since Trevor Noah stepped down, Wood had his own stint as guest host as part of Comedy Central's on-air process to audition and appoint the next permanent host. Here he is about a month ago when he hosted the show for
2: a couple weeks. Moving on to a big story today. One of America's Supreme Court justices is in a major corruption scandal. And you'll never guess who. Okay, it's Clarence Thomas. But you'll never guess what. A simply blockbuster bombshell report. Get this.
0: Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas did not disclose luxury trips around the world. Worth hundreds of thousands of dollars.
3: ProPublica says Justice Thomas has, for years, accepted free charter jet flights and stays on a yacht and uh, luxury resorts from real estate developer Harlan Crow. Crow is a conservative megadonor. Crow tells uh, ProPublica he's never tried to influence the justice on legal or political issues.
2: Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Sure, I'm sure. No, no. Hang on. No, no. <laughs> I'm sure this billionaire Republican didn't want to influence nobody. He he just... No, no, he know. He just wanted to go on vacation with Clarence Thomas, you know, because we all know that Clarence Thomas is clearly a bag of fun. (laughs) Just be straight up. Who wouldn't want to pull up on Miami Beach with old C.T.? Come on, Clarence, we're doing tequila shots. Mmm, Clarence loves tequila shots. (laughs) I don't know why I made him sound like Sling Blade. Here's my question. If you're going to buy a Supreme Court justice, why would you spend all that money on luxury yachts and planes for Clarence Thomas? You could have bought Brett Kavanaugh for a bottle of Jaeger and a Southwest Body Pass. This is the better deal.
1: Wood previously hosted Comedy Central's This Is Not Happening. His comedy specials for the network include No One Loves You and Father Figure, and he's still doing stand-up tours. Terry Gross spoke with Roy Wood Jr. in 2018 and started by playing a clip from Father Figure. In that stand-up special, Wood, who is Southern and African American, kicked things off by walking to the mic and instantly approaching a sensitive topic, the Confederate flag
2: but if we get rid of the confederate flag how am i gonna know who the dangerous white people are i'm just saying the flag had a couple upsides let's just be real about it ain't saying keep it around but i grew up in the south i can't tell you how many times the confederate flag came in handy Stopping for gas at a strange place at 2 in the morning. You see that flag hanging from the window. You know this is not the place to get gas. And you keep it moving. What's the rush to get rid of the flag, especially if you're white? If you're white, you should want to keep the flag for a little while longer so at least black folks will know you cool. Because if you're white and you're not an ass. That's the one thing that helps us identify you. You get rid of that flag, we. We, mm. we got to figure out a way to know who the cool white people, cool white people. We just got to start giving y'all wristbands or hand stamps. Just something you can show in a dark alley. Let us know you down with the struggle. That'd be cool. Give me your money, white dude. Like whoa, ah, ah, ah. I'm so sorry. Come on through. Come, come on through. No, they got the wristbands. They go, listen, put this wristband on. You just want to like, in case it go down, I we'll to have that
4: wristband on. Roy Wood Jr., welcome to Fresh Air. So the bit we just heard, it kind of starts in the middle of a sentence. It starts with, but, <laughs> but it's the opening line of your comedy special. Why did you start in the middle of a thought like that? Because we all know where, where you're going.
2: Um, I feel like once you hear the word Confederate flag... I've got your undivided attention. True. <laughs> and the first the first sentence of the special is, but if we get rid of the Confederate flag, which to me already positions me in an in unpopular place of attempting to defend the flag, I just felt like that would be a more gripping way to start a comedy special versus the traditional, hey, how you doing? To which I eventually got to it on the back end of that bit. But it was just something that kind of happened in happenstance where... The way that the bit was wasn't originally done that way. It was done in a traditional. Now let's talk about the Confederate flag. But I'd been in an argument with the comedian off to the side of the stage as I was being introduced. And I basically walked the argument onto the stage as if I was continuing a conversation when in actuality I really was.
4: A national conversation, yes. Yeah, an actual conversation. And and a conversation between you and the other comic. That
2: first line, as originally performed, was to a comedian standing off to the side of the stage. I wasn't even acknowledging the crowd. And it got a laugh, and I go, oh, maybe that's the first bit that I should walk on stage from now on. Because it instantly puts the audience in their seats. And, you know, for me, I'm very anxious to get to the jokes. I'm not big on salutations. I'm not a crowd work guy. And it's not that I don't appreciate the audience. I do. But I'm just a performer that's anxious to get to his craft. I kind of like it. It's how the musicians, like when you go see a rock concert and the band comes out and they don't say hello and they rock out for 10 minutes. And then at the conclusion of that 10 minutes, they go, Detroit, how are you
4: doing tonight? <laughs> and it's like, whoo. So that bit sounds like it has a lot of truth behind it. Did you feel, when you were growing up in Alabama, like Confederate flags warned you away from places and people that spelled trouble?
2: Yeah, I think the, the difference between Southern racism and Northern racism is that in the South, you know where you stand. And there's, I don't want to say a freedom in that, but when you know where the boundaries are, then you kind of know how to play the game a little bit more. So if someone's going to openly say, I don't like you people, and I'm going to hang a flag over my door to remind you I don't like you people, then I know not to eat at that business. How much cleaner is that than me sitting there and getting bad service for an hour and a half, complaining to the manager, and nothing happening? Mm -hmm. Which one is more tormenting? It's more—the Confederate flag is literally more convenient. You save me 90 minutes.
4: Did you see a lot of Confederate flags growing up in Alabama?
2: Um, Yeah, but I also started as a comedian. My first nine years of comedy from 98 until I moved to Los Angeles, you know, I was a Southern and Midwest act. So, you know, I did a lot of shows in a lot of strange places, a lot of armpits. <laughs> of America, if you will, uh, beautiful places sometimes questionable people. So, I've seen Confederate flags, I, you know, I, and, and I don't want to say it doesn't bother me because you know it's it's troubling to think why someone has the flag, you know, but it, it it doesn't scare me in that sense.
4: You say you performed at strange places. Did you ever perform at a bar? Or a club that had a Confederate flag?
2: Absolutely. I've been called the N-word from the stage by somebody in the crowd, and the club owner did nothing to defend me. So there's definitely been questionable situations. But at the end of the day, give me my $50 that I drove nine hours to get paid <laughs> so I can be on my way back to Birmingham. Cities like that, traditionally, uh, my protocol was to never stay at the hotel that the venue provided. So I'd either sleep in my car or I would stay at a, you know, I would drive three or four hours out of town. Like I would split the drive that night and just drive halfway back to Birmingham and then sleep somewhere else. Because I just felt like in those towns, if I'm one of the few black people and I'm here telling the jokes and, you know, ha, 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 it's all fun and games. But to some people there, it isn't a game. You know, there's a level of respect you have to have for someone who's bold enough to say that they don't like you and that they'll call you one of the most hated words in the history of this country. Somebody like that might be motivated to come find you after the show. And I'm the only person in town with Alabama plates, so yeah, get the hell out of there. And, you know, thankfully every gig wasn't like that, but I'm thankful for those gigs. So, you know, it's, if nothing more, my first nine, ten years of comedy were just... um, a very, very bitter education on the the psyche of the middle of the country.
4: Why were you even booked in places that had such a kind of racist audience?
2: Because they had a microphone. I didn't care. Why should I care? Did and they know that, that you t- were
4: African-American when they booked you? Yeah,
2: yeah, but they figure black people are funny, but you just better not date my daughter <laughs> or hang around town too late. Like, I did a show in uh, Johnson City, Tennessee, which is an eastern Tennessee mountain town. And people will come up after the show, and there's some town, there's some neighboring town over, and supposedly there's a sign that says, don't let the sun set on your black ass here in this town. where you basically had sundown warnings where you had to leave by the time lights were out. And this is 2002, 2003. This is recent. So when you're booked in a weird city, and the booker calls you and goes, Hey, man, I need you to go do blah, 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 Arkansas. And you look at it on a map, and you can see that it's—I call it the blue lines, the freeway. You know, the freeways on, like, the atlases are blue. They're denoted by the color blue. So I could look and tell by how how far off the blue line a city was, whether or not I was going to have problems. And it looks like a problem city. Okay, I'm going to go into town late. I'm going to pull up right to the venue. I'm going to do my gig, get my money, and then I'm leaving.
4: Now, you say at the end of your stand-up comedy special that, you know, right now you only want to do humor that ha- has some kind of, like, social significance, that has some kind of, like, larger meaning. Um, is that something relatively new for you in terms of, you know, not just, like, telling jokes but have it, like, really mean something?
2: Yeah, I think stylistically, I think The Daily Show uh, really did change my perspective on humor with regards to number one, trying to understand the other side of the issue. And then number two, digging a little deeper than the surface on the topic at hand to find, you know, nuggets of wisdom that are a little bit more truthful and explanatory. And, you know, I don't think my, my comedy wasn't always like that. You know, I started at 19. So my perspective was lacking for, I'd argue the first eight to 10 years just because I was a young man in his 20s still sorting out life. And, you know, the best comedy is delivered by people that have been through some stuff and experienced some things and seen the world. And I just hadn't done enough yet. Whereas you get a little older, you delve into the world some, you have your heart broken a couple of times, you break a few hearts, you have a child, you got, you got, you got a little bit of a body of work. To draw on at that point, you know, and I think that for me, once I started the Daily Show, it really started changing the trajectory of my comedy.
4: Well, let's hear an example of you on the Daily Show, and this is this is really f- funny. Um, this is from April 29th twenty sixteen, and you're doing um, basically you're doing a rap video as if you were Donald <laughs> Trump, and all of the phrases in this are things that Donald Trump has Every actually single said. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so okay, so let's hear it
2: have a great relationship with the blacks, the blacks. politicians all talking to action um, I was down at 7-Eleven I was, um, spent all, was nothing on my run for president all the um, women flirted with me on The Apprentice um, if a Ivanka what my daughter then perhaps I'd be dating her we have um, to have a wall done who's doing the raping um, we have to have a wall done who's doing, doing the, the raping, raping. check me out Democrats they love me check me out these Muslims love me oh, yeah. stop hating these women love me Enough. these gays love me everybody love me check me out making Kelly she love, love. me check me out illegals they love me love what me. it do these Veterans love me, protesters love me, everybody love me. Told you! I'm so good looking. I'm really rich. Part of the beauty of me is that I'm very rich. Don't respect women, they know it's the opposite. Ariana Huffington is unattractive. Happy Easter to all. I never seen a thin person drinking Diet Coke.
4: That is hilarious. <laughs> That came from yeah. yeah, Tell us the story.
2: uh, You know, we were we were just talking about how much Trump brags, and it was just more of a you know like he literally is like a rapper. He talks about his house, his boat, his properties, (laughs) and I started talking with Jordan Klepper, who was a correspondent at the time, and this is before he was hosting opposition. And Klepper and I were like, I bet if we dug deep enough into his tweets we could find enough bars to put into stanzas to make a full-blown rap song. And that's what we did. And we combed through the the word, the word Microsoft Word document was font size 12, single-spaced, and it was about 20 pages of just quotes and tweets and just anything braggadocious. And we just neatly went through and just found line by line and just put it all together.
4: And I love that the chorus was... They love me. Everybody loves me. They all love <laughs> <Okay>. me. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, that, that, was, that was fun. And, you know, and that's it's one thing to say, you know, back to the original point of Digging Deeper, we could easily make the analogy of, hey, here is Trump bragging about this, this and this. He's a rapper. Ha ha ha. And you move on to the next joke in Trevor's monologue or my desk chat or whatever. But the next level is to actually, if he's a rapper, let's prove it. Let's do a whole rap song. Let's go in a studio. Let's listen to beats for three hours and figure out which beat matches these tweets. And let's rent one of these Bruce Wayne manners out. The video is still up on YouTube as far as I yeah, know. Yeah, But there's Ferraris. We hired models. We had a golf course. We went way beyond what could have just been a three-line joke if we just wanted it to be that.
4: Do you have any idea if Donald Trump saw the video?
2: Oh, they saw it. I guarantee you they saw it. Uh, we we had a researcher that sent off for press credentials uh, for a Trump rally at the time the election was still going on. And they didn't reply to the email. So our researcher hits them up again and goes, hey, it's The Daily Show. Can we get credentialed for the Trump rally? And their reply was the YouTube link to the Trump video.
4: Wow, okay, they definitely saw it.
2: No other words, (laughs) nothing else. The only thing they replied with was the link to the video.
4: So I want to play another clip from your comedy special father figure. And in this, you know, you're talking about how we live in two different Americas and that when white people don't understand what African Americans experience, it doesn't necessarily mean that the white people are racist. Sometimes it's just that the white people are uninformed. And then as an example... You talk about going to a Best Buy where you had to educate a white sales clerk. You had just bought a, a cell phone case. And the Correct. sales clerk told you that you didn't need a bag for it. So you had to explain why you needed the bag.
2: Dude, at Best Buy, going to decide I don't need a bag with my purchase. <laughs> you just have an iPhone case. I figure you could just pop that up. And, I, you know, ain't popping sh- you put it in the bag. You need that in a bag. What do you need a bag for? I understand why you need a bag. It's wasteful, recycled. Don't you care about the earth? I go, sir, this has nothing to do with the earth. I'm a black man in America. I gotta leave this store with a bag, bruh. Right? It's about safety. I'm black. I don't get the luxury of just walking out with in my hand. That is a roll of the dice. That is a horrifying day. If I would have know, not only do I need that bag, bitch, I need that receipt. And staple it to the outside. I don't want a receipt in my hand. You staple my receipt to the outside like Chinese carryout, And I hold it up in the air. I Lion King, a Hakuna Matata, an iPhone case... Out of Best Buy. And it's not his fault. He just didn't understand. He thought he was saving the earth, but he was saving a life. That's what he was doing.
4: That's my guest, Roy Wood Jr. on his <laughs> recent comedy special Father Figure. So is that a true story? Did that really happen? To yeah, you?
2: that happened in Seattle. And it wasn't as flagrant as I made the sales clerk out to be in the joke, but it it was me very politely explaining to this guy. I don't want to walk out of here without a bag. I just don't. Like, you're cool, but the yellow shirt up there at the door, he doesn't know or is not going to assume. I have no bag, no receipt. I'm just walking out with something in my hand. That concept is so foreign to me as a minority and having been harassed and followed around stores before and suspected of shoplifting, why would I give someone invitation to question whether or not— I'm operating within the boundaries of the law.
4: I thought it was so interesting that you chose somebody to tell a story about who perceives himself as doing the right thing, as being very environmental minded and therefore trying to not give you a plastic bag, but not getting what it would mean for you to walk out without the bag and the receipt.
2: Yeah, and, and I mean you'd that have regard, the receipt,
4: but it, it would probably be in your pocket, and then if you reach for it, who knows how that would be interpreted? Yeah,
2: it's just nah. It's just, if I don't care if I bought a Tic Tac, I want a bag. I want <laughs> the biggest bag you have, just to make sure. And you know, and and that's where when it comes to educating people about issues of race, and just and just just here's a here's a here's a snippet of black life you might not have considered. Something as simple about a bag. Like, for me, I enjoy being able to find material that's specific in that regard because it gives me an opportunity to just show a little bit more of my world and what I believe African-Americans go through. And it's not to vilify this man because I can't say that he's racist because he didn't know that a bag could get me harassed. If he doesn't have a black friend that's ever explained that to him, when is he ever going to learn it? Here's a joke for me to explain it to all of y'all.
1: Roy Wood Jr. speaking to Terry Gross in 2018. After a break, we'll continue their conversation. Also, Ken Tucker celebrates the 50th anniversary of Al Green's album, Call Me. And Justin Chang reviews a new film version of a classic Judy Blume novel. I'm David Bean Cooley, and this is Fresh Air.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Hulu. Don't miss the new docu-series, Black Twitter, A People's History, from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, executive producer of Insecure, Black Twitter, A People's History tells the story of how Black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, A People's History, is now streaming on Hulu. This is my voice. I can tell you a lot about me, and I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on Black experiences. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcast.
5: Hey, this is Seth Kelly, producer at Fresh Air.
4: And this is Molly C.V. Nesper, digital producer at Fresh Air.
5: We co-write the weekly Fresh Air newsletter.
4: It's recaps of the week, staff recommendations, gems from the archive, and a glimpse at who's coming on the show soon, all in one place.
5: It's also a fun peek behind the scenes what goes into the producing and editing of the interviews, and a chance to meet the people who make Fresh Air.
4: You can subscribe by going to WHYY.org slash Fresh Air.
5: You'll hear from us soon. Now, back to the show. This is Fresh Air. I'm David
1: Cooley, professor of television studies at Rowan University, in for Terry Gross. We're listening back to Terry's 2018 interview with comedian Roy Wood Jr., He's a correspondent for Comedy Central's The Daily Show and recently guest-hosted that program for a few weeks. On Saturday, he's scheduled to be in Washington, D.C. with many other more serious correspondents as host of this year's White House Correspondents Dinner.
4: Can I ask you about the neighborhood you grew up in and if your parents worked, what they did for a living?
2: Uh, So I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, uh... On the west side, the neighborhood is called West End. Zip code 35211, one of the worst zip codes in the city in terms of crime statistics at the time. I haven't checked the crime census data <laughs> since I left in 96 for college, but a pretty rough neighborhood. Um, on the back side of the crack era, back side of what, we moved into West End on the back end of white flight. So in the 80s, we had a couple of white neighbors, but, you know, by— by the early 90s and, you know, crack had really taken over. You know, It was pretty much an all-black neighborhood. Um, the one thing that I've kind of joked about sometimes, but it's actually true, is that if you're going to live in gang territory, it behooves you to live deep in gang territory. Because where I lived in Birmingham, most of the shootings were happening where territories met. Like on borderlines almost, if you will. So there were a lot of bad people, but a lot of the bad stuff that happened in the hood happened more so on the outskirt areas of in relation to where I lived. Did you
4: ever consider and joining a gang?
2: No. I you know, my mom my parents were separated until I was in the third grade. So when my parents reconciled and we moved to Birmingham. My mother and I left Memphis and went to Birmingham. You know, I'd taken piano lessons. I was playing baseball. I was in gifted courses. You know, when I was on, when I got put on punishment and my mom would take my video games from me, I read encyclopedias. Just I, you know, I really out of lack of better options. But you know, I was always a brainy kid. I had Legos, and you know, and I was very aware of gangs. The saving grace for me. In my neighborhood was that um, my parents uh, bought me a really nice basketball goal. And there's a park up the street from my house uh, called Powderly Park. And Powderly Park had all the, you know, it it was a municipal city park. And they had all the hoops and, you know, it'd be bangers out there. And Powderly Park set on the edge of Gangster Disciple and Vice Lord Territory. So sometimes it would go down at Powderly Park. So my mom didn't really want me around that element. So I, And I've never talked with her about this. But my guess is that her ideology was if the boy likes shooting basketball, let's put a basketball hoop in the yard. And that way he won't be at Powderly Park if something goes down. And... We had – it's just – I don't know if it's fate or what, man, but we had a house, one of the few houses in the neighborhood with a two-car garage, a very wide two-car garage, which meant the way the goal was set up, You could play almost half court if you played off into the dirt off Mm -hmm. of the driveway. Mm -hmm. So we basically had half court – And we had the best basketball goal with a breakaway rim because the city park, the goals always break because they're rusted and crusty and they replace them with other rusty and crusty rims. So all the gangbangers came to our house to shoot hoops. So I met everybody in the hood.
4: All the gangbangers came.
2: Yeah, bangers would come. But but the goal was to keep you
4: out of trouble and all the troublemakers are coming to play basketball.
2: Okay, but so then you ask me what my father did, and here's mm-hmm. how it ties in. Okay, my father was a radio personality in the city, and he oh. was highly respected. My dad was a civil rights journalist back in the sixties and seventies. He was embedded any any march you can find me footage of. I'm sure my dad is no more than two or three steps behind Dr. King, covering the march. And so when it comes to black political talk, and when it comes to Black political commentary and playing the blues. And my dad did morning news on the radio. My father was the voice of the city of Birmingham for a very long time. His name rang out. And, I, and out of respect to my father, guys would leave guns around the corner. They would leave their liquor up the street. And when they came to our house, it was Switzerland. So you, you might see a vice lord and a gangster disciple. You, it's, it's It's plausible right there in our driveway, and there's no drama, out of respect to my father and my mom, because my mom also didn't take no smack off anybody. And I think there's something to that, you know, it takes a village mindset of showing kids, you know. And my mom would bring ice water out. Like, she was nice. So I grew up in a bad neighborhood, but I had a lot of good – I had a lot of circumstances in my favor that kept me on the good side of the wrong people.
4: What kind of show did your father do?
2: Uh, my father did – he did a jazz show. He did a political commentary show. But he also did morning news as well. So he was like on your way to work. And then these days in the 80s, you have to remember that black radio was very consolidated. So a black station in the 80s and 90s before the you know corporate split of the the genres of music, you would get R&B and upbeat 70s black music during the day. You would get current pop hits. Black pop hits in the middle of the day. And then at night was rap. So all black people listened to the same black station at a different time of day to hear their favorite genre of music. So no matter your age, you knew who my father was.
4: Wow. That that must have been amazing. Now, you started out as a journalism student in college. Did your father inspire you to head into a journalism to a gener- journalism career? A goal that you did not <laughs> exactly fulfill, but no, but kind of close. Really. I mean, you're doing you're doing um, the Daily Show, so there's a lot of news in that. It's just a comedy take on real news.
2: I I did everything in my power to not be like my father. Why? You know? And and because I saw journalism and radio, and it was it was cool, but. I was an adrenaline junkie. I wanted to be a firefighter. And up until my father's death, my senior year of high school, that when my father died, I was still hanging on to being a firefighter. And coming around into the spring of my high school senior year, um, I started noticing this guy, Stuart Scott, on ESPN. And Stuart Scott spoke like me but talked about sports, and he cracked jokes. And I go, hell, that's the same thing we do every day at baseball practice. I talk about sports. I crack jokes. I could do that. And it wasn't out of disrespect to Stuart Scott. It was just he does it so effortless. I go, hell, so do I. And that was the first time I saw a version of myself Mm -hmm. doing something. And so I go, what does Stuart Scott, what do I need to major in to do that? Journalism? cool, sign me up. And that's how I found the path to journalism. And then ironically, here we are 20 years later, and I'm a black man giving commentary to people about the state of the black condition, which is exactly what my father did, only with no punchlines.
4: So you, you carry his name, you're Roy Wood Jr. And in Birmingham, where you grew up, your father's name really meant something. After he died, what was the significance of the name? Did people remember him for a long time? Were you still seen as his son for a long time while you lived in Birmingham?
2: In Birmingham, I'll always be my father's son. That's just what it is. And there's nothing I can do to change that. You know, he was first. He was first and he was impactful. And to be fair, he said a hell of a lot more things that mattered than I did. You know, and even when I came back to Birmingham after college, I came back in 01. And I ended up hosting a morning show at the same station that my father used to work. At this point, the station was dedicated to hip-hop, and there had been a split in the genres and all of that. But, you know, there were a lot of people in the building, a lot of the engineers and, you know, some of the people in sales who worked with my father. There are people in, in radio in Birmingham, to this day as we speak, who the only reason they have a job is because my father gave them an internship back in the 90s.
4: So what was it like for you to go out on your own on the road where people didn't know your father and you were really like starting from scratch. Was that a good thing for you?
2: Yeah, that was a good thing. You know, I, I fought that for a long time because, you know, there was some degree of resentment between me towards my father because I always, I never felt like I got all of my dad because of affairs and, you know, other children and things like that. So, there was definitely resentment where I operated from a place of anger for a long time in terms of performing because it became this thing of I'm gonna make my own name and I don't need that name and I can do it and I. and that's where a lot of the performing the desire to perform came from was like okay well you might have ran the city I'm gonna run the country my name is gonna bring out more than yours and I'm gonna be and then I got back home three or four years later and I'm hosting a morning show in the same city and then everybody goes, you sound just like your daddy on the air. I'm like,
3: ah!
4: (laughs) It's really been such a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Oh, thank you. Comedian Roy Wood Jr. speaking to Terry Gross in 2018. On Saturday night, he's scheduled to host this year's White House Correspondents Dinner in Washington, D.C. The event will be televised live on C-SPAN. Coming up, rock critic Ken Tucker tells us why Al Green's album, Call Me, is widely considered his greatest. This year marks
0: its 50th anniversary. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Discover. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
4: Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This is Fresh Air. Al Green is widely considered one of the greatest pop singers ever, known for his soulful ballads. His commercial peak was the decade of the 1970s. Rock critic Ken Tucker realized recently that this year is the 50th anniversary of what he considers Green's greatest album, 1973's Call Me. Ken knew he wanted to do a piece to celebrate this rhythm and blues landmark. Call me, call me, call
0: me. Call me.
2: What a beautiful time we had.
5: In Al Green's song, Call Me, the singer addresses a woman he's passionately in love with, who, at this moment, is not feeling that same passion. What they once had isn't working for her anymore. Green acknowledges her fading feelings for him, even as he can't resist reminding her of, as he puts it, the beautiful time we had together. What he wants to tell her most of all is that she can call him any time, and he'll be there for her. In Al Green's musical universe, men and women are almost always operating on a level romantic playing field. superb nine-song album for high records in Memphis at Royal Studios in close collaboration with co-producer Willie Mitchell. Essential to the sound was the high rhythm section which included the three Hodges brothers bassist Leroy Charles on keyboards and guitarist Teeny Hodges. Howard Grimes played drums. In the 1970s the warm intimacy of the music that came out of Royal Studios attained an almost mystical force. When I went there to interview Green and Mitchell in 2003, Willie Mitchell yelled at me when I moved my hand to sweep away a spider web in a dusty corner of the studio. Don't touch it, he said. It's all part of the sound. I was not at all sure that he was kidding. hit singles off Call Me, along with Here I Am, Come and Take Me, and the title song. Green's phrasing is unique. He uses a falsetto croon that can deepen into a growl, enunciating lyrics conversationally. Call Me was Green's sixth album, and includes two superb covers of country music, Hank Williams' I'm So Lonesome I Could Cry, and this one, Willie Nelson's Funny How Time Slips Away.
2: I do it. Well, I guess I'm doing time.
0: It's been so long,
2: and it seems like
4: it was only yesterday. This
5: album also includes Jesus Is Waiting, a gorgeous early example of the gospel music that would at one point take over Green's career when he became the Reverend Al Green. And the most underrated song on Call Me is Stand Up, a quietly vehement piece of sinuous funk with politics that imply as much about the importance of black assertiveness as anything that Sly Stone or the Isley Brothers or Marvin Gaye were offering during this same period.
2: Just one day, and that's today.
5: When I read that this was the 50th anniversary of Call Me, I had a visceral reaction. I was momentarily overwhelmed, recalling the pleasure that this album has given me over the years.
1: Tucker. Al Green's album Call Me was released 50 years ago this month. Coming up, film critic Justin Chang reviews the new movie version of another classic from the 70s, the 1970 Judy Bloom novel Are You There God? It's Me, Margaret. This is Fresh Air.
4: Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, the automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy explains how Betterment's technology helps investors better understand and save on taxes. So, taxes are a real cost of investing, as are fees. Understanding your after tax, after fee returns is really what's important for investors. An example would be when you buy and sell uh, securities frequently. You can pay a lot of taxes because short-term capital gains, meaning I bought it and I sold it fairly quickly, have higher taxes than long-term capital gains. Our technology in particular will tell you what the tax implication of a particular move you'd like to make is going to be before you make that move so that you're making it with full transparency. Learn more at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed.
0: Join futurist Ari Wallach on a journey around the world as he meets the brilliant minds and brave pioneers remaking people's futures for generations to come. A Brief History of the Future. Stream now on PBS and the PBS app. This is Fresh Air. The author Judy Bloom is having
1: her moment in the movies. First is the subject of the new documentary Judy Bloom Forever... And now, with a film adaptation of her 1970 novel, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. It opens in theaters this week and features Rachel McAdams and Kathy Bates. The movie, like the book, tells the story of a sixth grader and her anxieties about boys, puberty, religion, and her recent move with her parents to suburban New Jersey. Our film critic, Justin Chang,
3: has this review. Given the recent uptick in book bands nationwide, it feels right that Judy Blume should be back so prominently in the conversation. Over the past several decades, the 85-year-old author has seen more than a few of her novels yanked from school library shelves, starting with her 1970 classic, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. None of that kept the book, with its frank treatment of an adolescent girl's inner life, from becoming a huge bestseller and an enduring touchstone. And now, more than 50 years later, It's been terrifically adapted to the big screen by the writer-director Kelly Fremont-Craig, with nearly all its warmth, humor, and wry wisdom intact. One of the best things about the movie is that it resists the temptation to update Bloom's book to the present day, likely realizing that a version set in the era of social media would be a markedly different story. And so it's the 70s when young Margaret Simon, winningly played by Abby Ryder Fortson, returns home from summer camp and learns, to her horror, that she and her parents are leaving their cozily cluttered New York City apartment and moving to a house in suburban New Jersey. It's a major upheaval for an 11-year-old, though Margaret is soon befriended by her new neighbor and fellow 6th grader, Nancy, played by L. Graham. Nancy, a bossy know-it-all, wastes no time bringing Margaret into her secret girls' club, where she presses them to talk about whether they've gotten their periods and whether they've started wearing bras. Feeling the pressure, Margaret goes bra shopping with her mom in a sweetly funny scene. Later, Nancy gives her and the other two girls in the club a few tips. If you want to get out of those small bras, you're going to have to do the same exercise and technique I do. There's an exercise? Of course there is. You hold your arms out like this and you say, I must, I must, I must increase my bust. I must, I must, I must increase my bust. Does that really work? I'm living proof. Now come on, get up, get up, get up, get up. You'll see. Get up. I must, I must, I must increase my bust. We I must, 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 I must decrease my bust. My bust. up.
4: I we must. must, we
3: must, we must increase our bust. We must. To further we speed must. along the process, Margaret begins praying every day and night, starting off each time with a nervous, Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. And so her anxieties about her body lead her into a deeper curiosity about her soul. Unlike a lot of her friends, Margaret wasn't brought up in any religious tradition, for reasons the movie gradually makes clear. Her father, Herb, played by Benny Safdie, is Jewish, and her mother, Barbara, played by Rachel McAdams, is Christian. Their marriage caused a lot of family drama years earlier, and they've kept religion out of the house ever since. But tensions persist. While Margaret is very close to her Jewish grandmother, played by a scene-stealing Kathy Bates, she has yet to even meet her maternal grandparents, who cut off contact with her mom after she got married. That long-standing rift sets the stage for some big emotional reckonings in the third act, which the movie plays for generous laughs, but also real poignancy. As she showed in her enjoyable coming-of-age movie, The Edge of Seventeen, director Fremont Craig has a gift for mining humor and drama from her characters in equal measure. She also has a terrific cast, including newcomer Fortson, who reveals Margaret's decency and sweetness, but also her capacity for thoughtlessness and cruelty. But the movie's most memorable character is Margaret's mother, Barbara. For those of us who still remember and cherish McAdams's performance as the villainous Regina George in Mean Girls, there's something especially moving about seeing her here, playing the loving protective mom to a young girl facing her own battle with peer pressure. But Barbara's own personal struggles—she's an artist who gave up a rewarding teaching career in New York to be a stay-at-home suburban mom—are no less dramatic than her daughters. McAdams is simply luminous as a woman trying to strike a balance between sensible authority figure and boho-free spirit. One of the most radical things about Bloom's book was its suggestion that kids could come to their own conclusions about faith, that religion wasn't something that should be foisted on them. The movie honors that conviction. Margaret doesn't join a church or synagogue, but she experiences her own kind of epiphany. She learns that puberty can hit at any time, but real maturity often comes later. She learns that everyone has their insecurities, and that everyone, from the unpopular kid in class to a queen bee like Nancy, deserves to be treated with kindness. Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret doesn't pretend to have all the answers. But by the end, this awkward preteen has achieved her own state of grace.
1: Justin Chang is the film critic for the LA Times. He reviewed... Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. On Monday's show, how South Africa nearly descended into civil war instead of giving birth to a multiracial democracy. Journalist Justice Malala explains how Nelson Mandela and his white counterpart kept the country on a path to peace after a shocking political assassination in 1993. Malala's book is The Plot to Save South Africa. I hope you can join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our senior producer today is Roberta Sherrod. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering support by Joyce Lieberman, Julian Hertzfeld, and Diana Martinez. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Salent, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yacundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.P.
0: For Terry Gross, I'm David Bean Cooley. This message comes from Schwab. It's easy to invest in ideas you believe in with Schwab investing themes, like online music and videos, artificial intelligence, and electric vehicles. Choose from over 40 customizable themes. More at schwab.com.
4: Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online.